Congratulations on being left behind during fall break, uh, but it's good to be together. Love that last song that we just sang, Jesus, 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 the sweetest name I know. That's why we're studying what we're studying as we're walking throughout the Gospel of Mark together. We want to think about how sweet Jesus' name actually is and how we can adopt that into our lives, how we can reflect that in the decisions that we make on a daily basis. So if you have your Bibles, let's continue our study of the Gospel of Mark as we continue to work throughout this book together and mark the seventh chapter. We're going to be studying in the verses that were read for us just a few moments ago. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. If you'll join me there, Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. I read a fictional story about a mouse that was scurrying in the hedges one afternoon. A cat spotted it and decided to chase after it. The mouse was scared to death, so he called on his fairy godmother and asked to be made into a cat. So the fairy godmother granted his request and turned him into a cat. The cat was walking down the street the next day, and a dog spotted it from across the road. The dog decided to chase after the cat. The cat, scared to death, called out to its fairy godmother and asked to be turned into a dog. So its request was granted, and the cat was turned into a dog. The dog was wandering around in the forest the next evening, and a tiger spotted it, started chasing after it. The dog was scared to death. So he called out to his fairy godmother and asked to be turned into a tiger. And as a result, he was turned into a tiger. Well, the tiger was wandering around in the hills just a few hours later and came across some native hunters. The native hunters had their bow and arrows. They started shooting at the tiger because the tiger's fur is, is really valuable to them, especially when it comes to wintertime. They use it for their clothes to stay warm. So the tiger started running and, and called out to the fairy godmother, asked to be turned into one of those native hunters. The fairy godmother appeared before the tiger and said, no. Think about what I've done for you over the last week. I've turned you from a mouse into a cat, from a cat into a dog, from a dog into a tiger, and now you want me to turn you into a, from a tiger into a native hunter? You want me to turn you into a person? I can change you into whatever I want to change you into. I can change your outside appearance all you want me to. But as long as you have the heart of a mouse, you're always going to be afraid. As long as you have the heart of a mouse, you're always going to be running. You could change the outside. You could change the exterior. But until they got to the root of the problem, until they got to the heart, the problem would never truly be solved. Sometimes we might wonder why we struggle with sin. We might sometimes wonder why we struggle to reflect God in the decisions that we make on a daily basis. We might, we might wonder why we struggle to live out the plain teachings and commands of Holy Scripture on a daily basis. We make a lot of changes we try to change the way that we talk. We try to change the way that we live. We try to change the 
TV shows that we watch and the music that we listen to and the people that we spend time with, we make all of these external and outward changes. So why do I continue to struggle with sin? Why do I still continue to struggle with temptation? Well, perhaps we need to take a look below the surface. Perhaps instead of just changing what's on the outside, instead of just changing the exterior, we need to take a look at the heart. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus helps us to do. As we study in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, Jesus invites us to take a look at our hearts to realize that if we are struggling with sin, if we're struggling with temptation, if we have some kind of problem with evil that exists in our decisions, the problem lies not just on the exterior, but on the interior. And so let's notice this story together, and then as we close, we'll see what we can learn from this section of Scripture. If you go back to what we talked about last week, in the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7, we find Jesus having this back and forth conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes. The Bible says in Mark chapter 7 and verse number 1 that the Pharisees gathered to Jesus. It wasn't just your local Pharisees though, it was also scribes sent from Jerusalem like individuals being sent from headquarters. They're wanting to test Jesus. They're wanting to find some reason to convict Jesus. And they found a reason, didn't they? They questioned him. You're the teacher. These are your disciples. So why are you allowing them to break one of our traditions? Why are you allowing them to sit down and eat food without first washing their hands? Why do you allow them, as their teacher, to break the tradition of the elders? Jesus responds with a rebuke. But it's not a rebuke of His disciples for neglecting these traditions. It's a rebuke of the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember that? Jesus calls them hypocrites. Jesus tells them in verse verse 6 and also verse 7 that the words of Isaiah are fulfilled in their lives. They honor God with their lips. The problem is their hearts. Notice how we're going to focus in on the heart in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. He says, You draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Your worship is in vain. It's useless. It's for nothing because you teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus rebukes them for leaving the Word of God, rejecting the Word of God, making void the Word of God in their lives so that they can establish and live by their own traditions. We spent some time thinking about that this time last week. Now as we enter into Mark chapter 7 and verse 14, Jesus' audience changes just a little bit. He goes from talking to the Pharisees and the scribes to talking to this very large crowd of people. We're not sure exactly what this might have looked like. Maybe this crowd of people was sitting around and watching, listening to Jesus as he had this conversation with the Pharisees and scribes. So Jesus takes the opportunity to answer the questions and to meet the concerns that no doubt they would have had. Or maybe Jesus was having a private conversation with the Pharisees and scribes. And so he's opening up this topic to everybody else as we look at verse number 14. Regardless of what this looks like, Jesus speaks to the crowd in what verse 17 calls a parable. Now, we oftentimes think of parables as really long stories. 
right, that Jesus tells. It's an earthly story that conveys a what? It conveys a spiritual truth. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning is the way we oftentimes think about parables. Well, this parable that Jesus presents to them in verse number 15 is not a story, it's a saying. But it still communicates a very great spiritual truth. He tells them in verse 14, instructs them, hear me, all of you, and understand. When Jesus says that, it's time to listen up. He's about to say something really important. He's about to say something really significant. He doesn't want people to just listen. He doesn't want people to just hear Him because if they did that, they'd miss the spiritual truth that's lying behind this saying that He's about to present to them. He says, I want you to listen to me and I want you to understand what I'm saying. Here's the parable. There is nothing, this verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Immediately the setting changes. The setting narrows. Jesus escapes the crowd. The crowd disperses and he's with his disciples alone in a very private setting inside of a house. And the disciples are confused. The disciples don't quite understand what Jesus means by this parable. Whenever we look from their point of view, when we look at this parable through their eyes, I think we can understand their confusion. Remember, Jesus' apostles, Jesus' apostles, His disciples are all Jewish men. Twelve Jewish men. And so you look back at the Old Testament law, specifically Leviticus chapter 11. The Bible contains foods that were clean and foods that were unclean. Here are the foods that you can eat under the Old Testament law, and here are the foods that you cannot eat. The Jews stuck to those laws very closely. Those laws were very important to them, very important to their identity. Just to illustrate that, if you go to the 2nd century B.C., there was a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He wanted to completely get rid of and destroy the Jewish nation. So you know one of the things that he did? He forced them to eat nothing but pig meat. Which was unclean under the Old Testament law. You might be surprised to hear that hundreds and hundreds of Jews chose to starve to death instead of eating something that God told them not to eat. That's how closely they clung to these food laws that we find in Leviticus chapter 11 about what goes into their bodies. Then you fast forward four chapters to Leviticus chapter 15 and the Bible talks about literally what comes out of their bodies. Different discharges from the human body and, and how that makes them unclean. Can you see the confusion that would have existed in the minds of the disciples? Jesus, are you favoring Leviticus 11 over Leviticus chapter 15? Are you telling us that it, it really doesn't matter what goes into our body, Leviticus 11? But it does matter what comes out of our body, Leviticus chapter 15. Jesus, what do you, what do you mean by this? Well, Jesus explains what He means, doesn't He? Beginning in verse number 18, Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? What did Jesus tell them to do back in verse 14? Right before He presented the parable, He says, I need you to listen to Me and I need you to what? Understand. 
Don't just hear me, but really hear me. Listen to what I'm saying and understand what I'm saying. The disciples didn't do that. We saw them at the end of chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 52 to be exact, that their hearts were hardened. I had a professor at Fried Hardman who told me that the disciples in the Gospel of Mark shouldn't be called the, the disciples, but the disciples. And I think you see that here, that they are still without understanding, and Jesus in a way is marveling at that, but then he goes on to explain himself. He explains the first part of the parable first. Going back to verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Okay, what does that mean? Verse 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Jesus says, I'm talking to you about the food that you eat. Which matches the context of Mark 7, verses 1-13. through 13. Why are you allowing your disciples to sit down and eat food without first washing their hands? Jesus says, what defiles you, what makes you unclean, is not about the food that you put into your body. Because it has nothing to do with who you are. He says the food that you eat has nothing to do with your heart. It has nothing to do with your character. It has nothing to do with your standing before God. It does not defile you. You put the food through your mouth, enters through your stomach, and is expelled a little bit later. He says that has nothing to do with who you are. Mark gives us a little note there at the end of verse number 19 that's very significant when it comes to the new covenant of Jesus. It says, thus he declared all foods clean. Remember, Jesus is coming to establish, Jeremiah chapter 31, a new covenant. And this new covenant is not going to be exactly like the first one. The new covenant is not going to be exactly like the old covenant. Under the old covenant, in order to reflect the holiness of God and to distinguish themselves from the sinful pagan nations around them, God gave them rules about what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. In the covenant that Jesus is inaugurating, He says none of that matters. It's not about what enters into your body that defiles you. But it's what? Where does the defilement come from? Where does the uncleanness come from? Well, that's the second part of the parable in verse 15. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus explains that in verse 20 by saying almost verbatim those very words. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. So you are favoring Leviticus chapter 11 over Leviticus chapter 15. You're saying it doesn't really matter what you eat, but it does matter the kind of discharges that come out of your body. Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. So I'm talking about sin. When you look at verse number 21 and verse 22, Jesus mentions 13 different sins. Notice what they are. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Those things which come forth from our bodies defile us. Well, where do those things come from? Jesus says they come from within. You read through those sins in verse 21 and verse 22. It's not just an exterior problem. It's not just a problem on the outside. Jesus says it's a heart problem. All of this sin begins in our heart. It's, it works its way out in our lives. 
And that's what defiles us. That's the point that Jesus is wanting to make. A very significant point. A, a groundbreaking point that He's making to these Jews who are standing in front of Him. It's not about what you eat, what you put into your body that defiles you, but it's about the sin that comes out of your body that comes directly from your heart. So as we look at this text of Scripture, what can we learn from this about our lives what can we learn from this about our struggle with sin? What can we learn from this about our hearts? Let me suggest a few ideas to you, then the lesson's going to be yours. Number one, starting out with just a general truth that we need to recognize. Sin begins in the heart. Where does sin come from? Where does temptation come from? We might be tempted to answer that question saying, well, I, I really don't know where that sin came from. It just came out of left field. It snuck up on me and just appeared out of nowhere. We might be tempted to answer that question saying it's Satan's fault. Satan's the one who placed this temptation in front of me and he's the reason that I sinned. It's not what Jesus teaches us. In Mark chapter 7, he says that sin begins in our hearts. All of these things, all of these sinful acts, whether in word or deed, come from within. And they are what defiles us. James teaches us that. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, but each person, notice there's no exemption there, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That's oftentimes called the sin life cycle. You ever heard that before? Where James is saying, you need to consider where these temptations come from. We are lured. We are enticed by our own lust. By the desire and the lust that exist within our hearts. And then when we act on that lust, when we act on those desires, what happens? Well, that's where sin comes from. I see something sinful and I want it. I desire it. Sin is attractive by nature. And so I have this lust for something that is contrary to God's will. I go and get it. What do you call that? You call that sin. And when you continue to sin, time after time after time, James says that's where death comes from. That will ultimately result in spiritual death. And so we need to recognize that sin doesn't just pop out of nowhere. It doesn't just come out of left field. Long before you said that sinful word, long before you did that sinful act, it already existed in your heart, in your lust, in your desires. So how should we respond to that reality? That's the point that Jesus is making. This is what defiles us. Well, when we think about the teaching of the New Testament and what we can draw out of this specific passage, as Christians, we must be people who are first transformed on the inside. We must be people who experience transformation from Jesus from the inside out. Like we said just a little bit earlier, sometimes we might wonder why we struggle with sin. We're making all of these external changes. We're making all of these changes to our behavior and our vocabulary and our company and what we put into our mind. Why do I still continue to struggle with sin? I think we need to spend some time thinking about this second point. Transformation only happens when it begins on the inside. 
Christianity is not just about changing your behavior. That's what the word repent means. When you look at the New Testament, literally the word repentance means to change the way that you think. It's not just changing the way that you live. It's not just changing what you say or what you do on the outside. Repentance begins on the inside. You change the way that you think about something, and then when you change the way that you think, by default, it's going to change the way that you live. Isn't that what Paul teaches us in the the second verse of Romans, the 12th chapter, when he says, do not be conformed to this world. As Christians, we don't want to be like the world. We don't want to live like the world or talk like the world. We don't want to look like the world. So what's the only other option? Don't be conformed, but be transformed. But where does the transformation come from? Transformation doesn't come from just controlling your behavior. He says transformation is by the renewal of your mind. Changing the way that you think. Meeting the root of the problem. Taking a look underneath. Don't be like the world. But be transformed by the power of Jesus. In the renewal of your mind. And when you renew your mind. He says by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. We will only be able to live out and discern the will of God in our lives. Whenever we're transformed on the inside. And we allow that to work its way out. Sin begins in the heart. So if that's the case, if it's about my lust and my desires, my heart needs to be transformed. I first need to be changed on the inside. Well, how can I do that? Number three, we have to guard our hearts from sin. If we're going to be transformed, if our hearts are going to be changed, we need to guard our hearts from all of the sin that exists in the world. We thought about this verse a couple of weeks ago as we thought about being pure in heart from Matthew the fifth chapter in our study of the Beatitudes. But notice again King Solomon saying in his wisdom, keep other translations, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You don't need me to tell you that there's a lot of sin in the world. You don't need me to tell you that there's a lot of impurity and evil in the world. How should we respond to that? Solomon says when you're watching TV or a movie, guard your heart with all vigilance. Whenever you're listening to the radio, guard your heart with all vigilance. When you're hanging around other people, guard your heart with all vigilance. As Christians, we have the responsibility to guard our hearts against the sin that exists in the world. We don't want sin to exist in our hearts because when sin exists in our hearts, according to Jesus, it won't be very long until it works its way out in our lives and it works its way out in our decisions. So we have to guard our hearts from what is sinful, but then where does that leave us? I'm just going to guard my heart from things that are bad and not allow sinful things to enter in. Well, then you have a heart that's empty. When you empty out your heart of all of the bad things, what's the next step? Number four, we have to focus our hearts on God. As we eliminate the sin that exists in our hearts and we guard our hearts from allowing more sin to enter in, we have to singularly focus our hearts on our Creator and our Savior. There are a lot of verses that teach us that, but I love how Paul says it in Philippians 4 and verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, 
pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, then what? Dwell on, meditate on, think about these things. We eliminate from our hearts what is sinful so that we can fill our hearts with what is good and honorable and just and pure. Now, if we take a deeper look at that, I don't think that Paul is saying, hey, you just decide what's just and honorable to you, and I'll decide what's just and honorable to me, and we'll focus on that. I think when you look at this from a deeper perspective, what do all of those eight adjectives in Philippians 4 and verse 8 go back to? What do they find their definition in? They all go back to God, don't they? All of these things are defined by who God is in His nature and His character. God is the one who is ultimately true. God is the one who is honorable and just and pure. God is lovely. God is commendable. He's worth bragging about and sharing. God is excellent. He's the one who's worthy of our praise. You recognize that because that's why you're here tonight. So what is Paul saying? Focus your heart on God. Focus your heart on who God is. His nature, His character, as He has revealed it in the pages of Holy Writ. Whenever we struggle with sin, our sin problem is ultimately a heart problem. And what Jesus wants us to get from this text is that number one, sin begins in the heart. If that's the case, we have to change our hearts. We have to be transformed on the inside. And if we're going to do that, we need to guard our hearts from what is sinful, bad, and evil and fill our hearts with God and who He is. Perhaps then, and only then, when we take a look underneath, will we be able to eliminate those sins that appear time and time and time again. It will take us changing the way that we think so that we'll change the way that we live. If we can help you to do that tonight, if we can help you to address a sin problem, or if we can help you to address the underlying heart problem, then we'd love that opportunity as we extend the invitation and together stand and sing.